Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. She'll be a good hunter, but she's a little charcoal lab. She's cute, but uh, you know, three months. So, yeah, yeah, I, um, I've, I've tried, I've got a year and a half old lab, uh, hunting dog and I've tried to have him in the studio here before doing podcast. And I'm like, Oh, he's really good. He's laying down. He's been sleeping for a couple of hours. So you get the podcast all rolling and he finds like a moose bone. And then he starts chewing on it and like, I'm in a, like a yeah. shop studio thing here, office slash studio or whatever. So it's, you know, it's a bit, a bit of echoey in here. It's not a super mm. cool studio. And then he starts dropping the bone on the concrete floor. So <laughs> I had one show I had to go back and you look at the audio file and you know what audio files look like. Yeah. Like the, and then it's like, the guest is speaking and I'm all quiet and all of a sudden you hear this, this big spike in the middle of my audio file where he drops the bone on the concrete floor. So, yeah. uh, so he's in the house. Uh, I'm, yeah. my wife was like, do you want to take him out? He's like, usually, and I'm like, no, sure. Shooting that, uh, he's going to decide to start doing something in the middle of a podcast. So yeah, I'm sure, kinda... I'm sure your puppy's going to fire up at some point. Yeah. So, yeah, Cassie will hopefully, uh, you know, run interference for me, but whatever. No, we'll, we'll see how it's it goes. Real. It's real. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're rolling. And um, okay. Dr. Peter Cott, welcome to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Thanks a lot. Good to meet you. No, you guys. Is, uh, yeah. Really exciting. I'm really exciting that look at that. He's got a fish on the wall back behind him there. Fish pictures. Oh, yeah, look at and Couple is that a fish, yeah? Is that a mounted fish or a, a art piece? It's it's actually uh, a piece of uh, cedar wood carved oh. into a coho. It's uh, it's pretty cool. I could show you if it, you want. It it it's is. Was that? I'll show you. 
Is, is that the inspiration you got for your steelhead carving, Curtis? I don't know. I'm going to have to... Oh, you know what? I'm going to have to ask him because I think that might be from who I think it's from. So it's got it's got like tiger striping lines on it. Is that from wood burning or is that... It, yeah. So once he throws his headset back on, I'll, I'll ask him here. There you go. Yeah. So is that from uh, is that from Roderick Brown in in Terrace? No, it's from uh, Oregon. Oh. About uh, oh yeah, about tw- I got about twenty years ago or something. Yeah, okay. it's a neat piece. Yeah, I've got uh, unfortunately it's kind of dorky, but I've got fish all over the place. You know, it's <laughs> I try not to make it too too obvious, but they kind of collect. You know, so no, it's cool. That's cool. It's uh, yeah. It's a great, great way to honor, honor what you love. So Pete, yep. you are a fisheries biologist and a scientist and you are in the Northwest Territories. Yes. Yellowknife? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Capital of Northwest Territories. Uh, yep. So I work for the government of Northwest Territories currently. Most of my career I spent with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans with federal government. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. So before we launch into learning about fish and specifically burbot, uh, how's your hunting season been? Uh, it's been pretty good. Uh, actually, it's been actually kind of cool because I, I think that um, Kyle Patchluck is the link that that he he yep. yeah. So I went. My hunting season started. I don't. It's almost like I don't consider it because the hunting season is kind of like the fall, you know. But, but in um, in March, I went down with him to Argentina, and uh, and he was hunting red stag there. Invited me along with a couple of his buddies, and I got to hunt uh, black buck. So I got this really cool black buck, which is you guys probably know. It's a it's a antelope. It was originally from um, India, um, Nepal, that kind of area, and they're they're there's a lot of them down there and anyway, it was super, super cool experience. And I've never, I've never been on a, you know, a, a lodge with guides and all that kind of stuff before. So it was a pretty neat experience for me. Well, for all of us, it was, it was cool. That's six. Yeah. So for, for the, the listeners that are, are wondering the connection, uh, Kyle Patchelock was my old carpentry boss. And when I started, when I left guiding and went into, carpentry it was when covid kind of first started kicking up and when i started with kyle we always called him cho but uh, when i started with kyle he had talked about that previous fall he had bought this hunt at a rod and gun club banquet and it was about three years that it kept getting pushed off because of covid pushed off and he always talked about this argentina hunt that he was gonna go on because he bought it and then finally in the uh, last March, he was able to go on it. And so it was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I saw some of the photos and yeah. all the photos. Yeah, it was super and, neat. Uh, yeah. So uh, Joe was married to my cousin, Marissa. So that's the link there. So we've been, you know, since. Oh, really? Yeah. So since uh, since we've been. Oh, cool. Uh, since we've known each other, we've always been talking about hunting. So in uh, um, sure. we got evacuated uh, from the Northwest Territories because of wildfires. So that put um, uh, some of my. I was going to go sheep hunting in in um, 
August, but uh, instead went in September. Uh, worked out well. Me and my buddy both got uh, sheep, doll sheep, so hunt up here. Um, so that's flying backpack stuff. So it's pretty neat. So try to try to go every year, every other year, whatever if I can. You know, it's uh, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a thing, but uh, but it's a uh, it's a really cool uh, a cool hunting experience. Um, and then um, last week, or yeah, when we first started setting this up, I I said I couldn't make the time that you had suggested because I was went to Manitoba deer hunting. So got a couple deer. So we had deer tonight. They weren't they were not they weren't uh, trophy deer or anything like that. But uh, they're uh, some of the best tasting of whitetails I've had, and and uh, so that's what we had for dinner tonight. Well, that's awesome. And, that's yeah. awesome. And and yeah. it, sorry. No, go keep going. Oh, uh, the other the other thing is ptarmigan are. Oh yeah, that's, that's where I was going with this. I was on your Instagram account, and I'm like, oh, muskox, cool. And then like ptarmigan, ah, oh, yeah. I, so because so we went because oh, I, I want to go to got this hunting Well, me and uh, my daughter went down the road last last. Um, last weekend to just to get some wings and that for well and the meat but for to to have something for when she's uh you know when i'm going to start training or at least we'll have something and we uh we limited out in in an hour you know and that's with 20 minutes driving out you know so it was they're everywhere there's i've i've never seen so many ptarmigan in town so it's a really uh or near town and in town but uh it's really um uh really uh you know, I, I, they go through cycles like, like a lot of animals and, uh, they're really, really, uh, high right now. So the, uh, the foxes well, and the wolverines, lynx will have be having a great time. It'll be a good winter for them. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. that's interesting because down here in Southern BC in the Rocky mountains, it, it was an epic year for grouse, like for all the species, blues, roughs spruce grouse and then in the prairies i've been going over to alberta a little bit um with uh a guy who's a scientist and also like big upland game bird hunter and it is like the epic of all epic years in the prairies for gray partridge and sharp tails and even their pheasants uh like really do so whatever it was whether it was last winter if it was the conditions of the spring growing season or whatever it was good for upland game birds like yeah. and and now learning about ptarmigan in, in the north that that's that's pretty exciting but i uh i, w- I want to get ruger my dog out and and do a uh i, I just kind of thought I'm, i don't want to do a fly-in trip anymore like i'm just getting too old for that and the big backpacks and all that kind of stuff and stressing you know bringing meat you know from way out or whatever but i'm like you know how to fly in somewhere and just do like a ptarmigan hunt in the yeah, north. Great. I'm just like, just put the dog in a little super cub and get dropped off on a ridge or whatever. I'm just like, might have to make well, that. And the, well, and the nice thing too is um, in, uh, in Northwest Territories, well, and in Nunavut too, I think is the same. Uh, there aren't any non-resident tags. You have to go through an outfitter for big game. Yep. But you can get a small game tag. Yeah. So, yeah. so you That's can, as a non-resident, yeah. you come up. Yeah. But we're, but unfortunately, like we don't have anything, like you can't go with your immediate family. You can't do a, a hunter host thing mm-hmm. or, or any of that kind of stuff. So it's, 
yeah anyway we we don't have that um that up here unfortunately for for uh, non-resident hunters so uh well i'm i'd, I'd be cool with the ptarmigan hunt i also saw the muskox yeah. on your instagram page and went, oh, that's kind of cool but uh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah those uh must Muskox have been uh, increasing in numbers like crazy. Uh, they were thinking that, um, don't quote me on this, but more or as many muskox now as pre-contact, pre-European contact, you know? Wow. So they're wow. just, yeah, they're, they're, they're south of the tree line. They found muskox in northern Saskatchewan, northern Alberta. They've ambled down. Uh, they're all over the place. Oh, yeah, so, so the muskox... The first muskox I got, I had to travel far north of Great Slave Lake into the tundra. But uh, the other one was kind of north of Great Slave Lake. And the last one, which is my biggest one, was south of Great Slave Lake. So in the trees, you know, they're, uh, they're well into the tree line now. And, and it's just, yeah, it's a, everything's changing. Um, you know, I've got, I've, we had crows for the first time that I've seen anyway. I know they've been vagrant up here, but I haven't seen them. And they were in my backyard along with ravens and whiskey jacks and uh, magpies, you know, oh, there weren't wow. even magpies when I, when I moved up here, you, you saw a magpie and that was like an, it was like seeing a peacock, you know? So, uh, <laughs> and now they're all over the place. Wow. So is the, uh, is the muskox for you an over the counter tag or is that like a limited entry? So lottery draw. So yes, pretty much. So before, up until a couple of years ago, there are four tags in. Uh, I think there's there's four tags here and four tags in another um, another area further north that you could draw on. So so around this area, four tags uh, were available. Uh, so it was a draw. Not a lot of people put in. Your odds are still pretty good. But then it. Uh, 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 I'm just going to ignore what she's chewing. It looks, well, it doesn't look too bad. Um, but uh, anyway, um, uh, but uh, was it maybe two, two or three years ago or something like that? They reassessed. Like, muskox are clearly more abundant than they've ever been. Uh, there, People are seeing them all over the place. So they increased the tags to 51. And essentially it's, pretty much an over-the-counter tag now because you got more people or about as many tags as people uh will be applying for them because it's it's not easy to get to where they are so it's every now we've got a lot of really amazing opportunities in northwest territories for hunting the downside of it everything's an expedition so you know ptarmigan is great because you could go down the highway and you know like i've said we're gone for an hour but, you know, these other things are, oh, you know, a, a day snowmobile travel to get to where you're in a place where you can hunt, you know. So, and, and same, same with moose and, all, and everything. And we just don't have a lot of, uh, we don't have a lot of roads and we don't have the, uh, the network of, um, of logging roads or even uh, oil and gas and mineral exploration roads. A lot of it is, uh, a lot of them are made of, of ice, you know, a lot of the, because we've got such long winters, a lot of the exploration is done in the winter and, you know, our forestry isn't um, up in, especially in this region, you know, there's, there's no point in, in, in uh, harvesting our little tiny trees. So, uh, so we just don't have that, that network like you guys have where you can, you know, explore all over the place. Whereas here it's like, 
it's a, every everything's a commitment so that's the that's a, i mean it's a cool aspect of it because it's everything's adventure right but um it is uh it's pretty hard to get to so back to the muskox tags yeah there's 51 but there usually aren't 51 people willing to do that so a lot of the time even if even if there are that many people applying it'll often they'll say nah i won't go to it this year so um it'll go to the next guy but what a lot of the what a lot of people are doing now is going in the summer with boats which is still a pretty big journey in a boat but you've got to have you know fairly yeah big boats like people are you know like hughes crafts and things like that in the you know 20 to 24 foot range that they're going out with and things like that so well still part yeah, of this still part of wild canada up there so like you said it's kind yeah, of it's cool, neat but, but you can't just whip yeah. out a weekend and come come home kind of type hunt so yeah i mean uh, yeah let, yeah no, yeah and the densities are really low too that's the other thing you know like it is the subarctic you know it's a pretty 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 hard living for most animals so the, yeah. the, despite what i said about ptarmigan that you know like moose and things like that there just aren't as many as there are in, in southern parts of canada because it's not as productive yeah yeah you know, habitat wise well, I'm looking forward to shifting gears and to learning about your science and area of specialty, the, the, the burbot. And sure. um, so that's going to be uh, cool. So, hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, your co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by J. Martin Taxidermy out of Kelowna, B.C. I had a uh, account suggested account pop up on my Instagram this morning and it was called bad taxidermy and I was scrolling through and it's these atrocious atrocious just it's 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 like a cult following I think bad taxidermy is and just some horrible horrible things and I can tell you for a fact that anything that is done by Jesse at J Martin taxidermy will never appear on <laughs> any of those accounts because the stuff that he does is phenomenal. It's, it's, it's really, really high quality. If you guys haven't checked him out, make sure you do. Uh, I'll give you guys the, uh, the social and everything to check him out after the podcast, but he does some incredible, incredible work. He's, he's up there with, with the best of the best. So if you are looking to get anything done, make sure you get a hold of Jesse because he will make sure he does the best quality for preserving any sort of hunting memory that you have that you want to have for a lifetime, multiple lifetimes, because that stuff often gets passed down and is a part of the part of the family for for years to come. So as always, big shout out, big thanks to J Martin Taxidermy for supporting us here at the hunter conservationist podcast absolutely yeah appreciate that jesse you did your phd thesis on burbot if i read yep. that correctly so <laughs> what yeah you did what, what uh what got you interested in that species um yeah, that's a good question. Uh, sometimes I wonder myself, you know, it's not, not an easy species to, to, to study because it's most of the interesting stuff they do is in the winter. Um, 
But uh, I, got, I told you before, I was working for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans for a lot of my career. And, and um, up here, a lot of the industrial impacts, industrial activities, which may have impacts, are uh, conducted in the winter because that's when we got access to places. So um, as you guys probably know, uh, one of the ways to avoid impacts to fish and fish habitat is to um, have um, windows of no in-water work during spawning times or sensitive times for certain fish species. So, you know, fall spawning fish and spring spawning fish, if they're around, you know, say no in-water work between X date and, and Y date, for instance, and you avoid a lot of the impacts there. Um, whereas, like I said, a lot of the work's being done in the winter and we've got this ubiquitous winter spawning fish that we know very little about and, and a lot of the activities that we're, that we're, you know, looking at regulating under the Fisheries Act for impacts are done during the, uh, the, you know, what we, what we believe is the spawning period for bourbon. So that got me going down that rabbit hole. So, you know, working with different people. And I remember um, I was working with this one, um, this one guy, David Mann. He was this researcher from uh, University of South Florida that was helping us with a project. He's a, um, a fish acoustic specialist. And um, anyway, we we're looking at the impacts of sound on fish or the potential sound propagation underwater from uh, from from a mining project there's a de beers diamond mine and they were um during exploration and they were very uh um uh, they were great about letting us uh, come and do some research to uh to see what kind of uh noises are actually created and, and see what kind of what kind of uh, things we could learn about um about under ice sound so with with this uh guy uh, dr man we went and um sampled all sorts of different sounds like from from ice roads uh traffic on ice roads to drills um you know large diameter drills drilling for for diamond cores um um snowmobiles uh, ice augers people walking ice cracks um we actually had a uh we we um measured a uh the sound of a a fully loaded um uh, fuel tanker hercules plane landing on an ice strip and then wow. very unfortunately a fully loaded uh, uh, fuel tanker hercules taking off because something malfunctioned and they couldn't get the fuel off so that was terrible for the mind but but anyway it's interesting that we got to hear this this sound of of this thing landing and and as you as you probably know you know from ice fishing or whatever that it's that the sound of the cracking of the ice that's really loud you know mm -hmm. so so one of one of the uh one of the things we learned from that study is exactly that, that the loudest sound out there is, is ice cracking and, um, and heavy things traveling on the ice increase the, the, uh, frequency of ice cracking noise, but it goes away, you know, like a truck will go by it'll crack along the way and then it'll go. And then when, when the sun comes up, the ice will, um, 
will heat up a bit and it'll it'll crack when it uh, uh, when it increases its um, its uh, uh, you know temperature a little bit. Um, but anyway, so we were sitting there and you know we were we we're weathered in in this exploration camp and and he does a lot of stuff with uh, with fish acoustics and a lot of the vocalizations of fish and he said, you know, I bet you burbot make calls because other cod fish make calls like Atlantic cod, haddock and different, different fish. And I was like, huh, because we were talking about burbot and that was one of the reasons why we we're doing all this study. So, um, so yeah. And then that, uh, that got me into that realm of, uh, of wondering if burbot makes sound and then developing a project around that. And then also, uh, studying a lot of other things about the reproductive ecology. And then that just, because I was based in the north working on burbot, I, you know, did collaborate with people working on contaminants and and um, movement ecology and all sorts of other things. So it's been pretty cool. Learned a lot of stuff and worked with a lot of cool people. Wow! No, that's a, that's super excited. What a what a great great entry into uh, a field of research. So I, w- I want to come back to the sound thing uh, a little bit, but, but I, partly what you answered there is, is I wanted to start off and like learn about the fish as well. Like this, the, the burbot is, so they're like in the cod family. Cause they're definitely not like char or. That's right. Trout family. So yeah. Are cod and haddock the same family or are those two separate? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so you know how, how uh, all the salmons and, and uh, trout char and all that are in Salmonidae. Um, the, the cod family is Gadidae and, oh. and um, burbot are the only freshwater representative of that family, which has about 300 different species in it. So there are some species like Atlantic Tom cod, for instance, and um, um, and even Atlantic cod and Greenland cod. Sometimes they could have landlocked populations, but they're not they're not uh, obligate freshwater fish, you know. Whereas burbot are their entire life cycle is in freshwater. Yeah, they've they've caught them in estuary areas before, you know, like, like everything, there's a little bit of blur around the edges, but they're a freshwater fish. Now, the interesting thing about them is like, as you're kind of alluding to, they're a total oddball in the freshwater fish world, right? Even in, you know, you look at fishing regs or whatever, and there's like, and burbot, you know? <laughs> um, but, um, but they're, if you look at them from a different angle, they're a completely normal marine fish they do things just like marine fish do so they they act just like a marine cod or you know or any of that family that's in the marine environment and they if if they were living in a marine environment they wouldn't stand out one bit so what what are some of those traits that separate them that that separate them from, from yeah, freshwater like a, fish. Like make freshwater them, fish. You're yeah. saying they're acting like a marine fish. Like, so obviously yes. ocean, ocean fish, right? So what are some of those? Yeah. So, so some of the things that, um, that they, um, they use, uh, well, they're, they're winter spawning. So they're one of the few consistently winter spawning fish. Like there are fish 
like for instance, I've caught lake whitefish that are gravid, you know, eggs full in after Christmas in Great Slave Lake, you know. So yes, some of the population spawn more in the winter, but burbot pretty much consistently spawn in the winter all over the place. And saying that there are some populations that kind of push it into May and that kind of thing, but more or less they're a, they're a winter spawning fish. And that's fairly unusual for a, a lake spawning fish. They're a, like a lot of uh, marine cods, they're broadcast spawner. So they'll uh, just release their eggs um, into the, you know, on, onto the, onto the substrate and uh, mix with milt. Um, they've got uh, very unusual spawning behavior uh, that you guys are probably aware of. Um, so uh, you want me to talk about that right now or? or? No, absolutely. Sure. Well, yeah. they go into uh, essentially a spawning orgy ball where uh, a pile of uh, males will surround one or more females. And they could be, you know, a few of them a dozen of them they've been recorded of like several dozen of these things writhing around together and then they will just um you know release all of their uh their eggs and sperm at the same time um people that have actually recorded this on video and clear in in place where you can see well just white out all of a sudden you can't see anything anymore. It is just carpet bombed by burbot sperm. And that's how they, um, that's how they do their thing. Uh, there's something called uh, gonadosomatic index. Do you, do you know, you guys familiar with that? It's, it's the, the relative size of, of the gonads to the rest of the body. Okay. Okay. Animal. So it's a lot, it's, it's used for commonly with with female fish they talk about a lot in terms of their their productivity their out, their their reproductive output you know so if the the higher gsi the more reproductive output they have and uh so you know depending on the size of the eggs they could have tons of eggs burbot have little little teeny eggs so they could have like uh, tens of thousands of eggs right so they've got tons of eggs but the interesting thing is, with or an interesting things, tons of interesting things about burbot, as you'll. But uh, but one of the interesting things about them is, um, yeah, they're they're testes. Um, so in, in fish, they're called testes, not testicles. But anyway, testes are gigantic. So they are about the same size as the females' ovaries on average, uh, which, which is unusual. Normally, like a walleye or something like that would have about 10% of the, the reproductive output that a female would have. You know, they just, um, <clears throat> they don't have as much. But I've caught some burbot that had over 20% GSI. So that that means that 20% of their body's weight is sperm. <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty humbling. Uh, ours, just going out a limb here, not not making any uh, any wild assumptions, but ours as humans is like there's a decimal and a zero before, in, in front of the number. Yeah, it's a pretty bunch tiny. Of zeros. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's it's pretty pretty small. Like you know, for I looked it up one time. The average you know 
average testicle weight for a, a, a adult male. And yeah, it was pretty humbling, nowhere near a burbot. So, um, so that's pretty neat. And it, um, and it has to do with a reproductive strategy, um, where, uh, and, 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 um, sperm competition with sexual selection. So, uh, like a moose, um, they might, a male moose might mate with, a with a, a number of cows, um, and has a certain amount of reproductive output, but they spend a lot of time and effort growing massive antlers and fighting. Whereas burbot don't do any of that. They're all about love, nothing about fighting. In fact, uh, I did one, uh, bit of research looking at sexual dimorphism. So that's, um, the, the visual differences between males and females. So, you know, a good example would be moose, big antlers, female doesn't have any, um, uh, let's say, uh, you know, Pacific salmon in the, uh, in the fall, they'll get elaborate mm-hmm. colors, big, um, you know, their, their, their head shape changes everything like that. Just, they go crazy in sexual dimorphic ways. Whereas burbot have no sexual dimorphism at all, even in their, in their gonad weight, you got to cut them open uh, to see what sex they are. I mean, if someone knows how to sex them without doing that, that's great. They're amazing. But uh, I mean, we've measured everything and there's no statistical difference between like fin lengths, uh, you know, size, weight, all of these things. So, so they're, and because they don't, they don't bother wasting time or energy doing that because they'll find each other, rise together in, in a, in a, in a spawning ball and just, let it go and and wherever it, it it lands it lands i mean there there might be something about you know what you know the the hardiest burbot could get in there first or the the one that that calls the loudest can can attract more mates initially so it might have a better initial position but but they're not a uh, they're not an aggressive fish they don't show a lot of um um any sort of uh you know competition in that sense and combative competition and they don't uh put a lot of energy into changing their body shapes or or uh growing you know ornate fins or anything else which you know has ecological costs of course you know like a grayling male grayling got a gigantic fin i mean that slows you down you know so that makes you it makes you more sexually uh i guess uh, attractive to the female but i mean it makes you slower to a pike right so there's all these there's always these trade-offs you know so burbot have traded off putting a lot of energy into making massive gonads and their trade-off is they don't bother fighting about it oh, that's, hmm. that's there's uh, wow. some some lessons for uh for country leaders there to maybe start, start <laughs> yeah. looking at the, at the bourbon as a peace model. They, <laughs> they are like, they're a really ancient looking fish. Like, you know, they yeah. kind of remind me like a, like of a coelacanth, you know, with the, the long, you know, the fin that wraps around, they're just very mm-hmm. prehistoric looking like in ecologically taught, terms are they like would they be considered like an ancient fish or um yeah. you know sort of have it changed over the millennia type concept not 
Really? They're not a recent fish, but they're not from fish standpoint. They're not, they're not that ancient. I'll just give you an example, like a Northern Pike, super successful form. You know, they've, they've been around for, for like about 60 million years. Okay. Burbot have been basically unchanged though, for about 5 million years, like way longer than people, you know, by, by, you know, orders of magnitude. So, um, Loda Hoye or something like that was a fossilized burbot that was like the the proto burbot, and it looks from fossil record almost the same as our burbot today. And an interesting thing about burbot and pike as well, there are a lot of I mean they're very very different fish, but a lot of similarities. Both of them have the largest distributions of any freshwater fish in the world. They're all around the northern hemisphere, you know, from about. 41 or 40 degrees north you know they dip down the states obviously too but uh but more or less around the world north to um you know once you get into to pure tundra um and uh, the arctic islands so you know you, you look at them and there, there's it's amazing how 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 successfully they've colonized and the other interesting thing too is that with burbot, there's only two subspecies, you know, like with with whitefish or lake or um, uh, arctic char and different things. There there could be two subspecies in a lake, you know. So um, so there's so much less plasticity in in pike as well and burbot. Like they're just it's like we got this five five million years ago and they haven't really. You know, natural selection hasn't really bothered changing that. They're like this. This works out pretty well. So whereas, whereas, um, you know, um, lake trout, whitefish, uh, a lot of the salmonids, there's so much variation. Like very interesting from a taxonomic standpoint. But you know, they're constantly changing um, from lake to lake, and 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 um, and all sorts of things. So it's uh, so so to answer your question you know in in uh the evolutionary time scale five million years isn't that gigantic of a of a stretch uh but yeah they've been around for a long time not coelacanth long but yeah. but yeah. a long time they're, they're they're pretty successful fish wow that's amazing um so hmm. the largest distribution of freshwater fish in the world is that is that what you said the large yeah the largest the largest distribution so if you if you take mm -hmm. um like the distribution of northern pike and you take the distribution of bourbon and lay them on top of each other they're not exactly the same but they're pretty close to the same you know there's some areas where pike live the bourbon don't and vice versa but they're it's huge it's it's uh, circumpolar right around right around the, the globe all through europe and asia wow. like there's bourbon in mongolia and china and throughout scandinavia like kazakhstan same thing with pike so it's pretty, it's pretty neat. Um, they're it's super successful fish. So in Canada, so, so I guess like two parts to this question. So in Canada, what is their conservation status? Uh, is it different, different, you know, uh, areas of the country? And then like, what are their, their key vulnerabilities? Mm, okay. Um, and uh, there are people, especially in BC, that this is their bag. So for those people, um, if I get anything wrong, sorry. Uh, but uh, in in BC in particular, like in the Kootenai drainage, um, yeah. 
that's where we they're are. pretty they're pretty hurting there's been a lot of work done by um I can't even remember the name of BC uh, uh, Forestry and Fish and Wildlife, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now um, they've got, quite, uh, yeah, it's quite, quite a long Min- name. Ministry, uh, well, they've changed. It was Ministry of Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations, and now they've split. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But they have some dedicated biologists who, who just work on burbot and sturgeon because of the, um, the bilateral agreements with, uh, with Idaho and the uh what's it called the uh the libby dam and um the bonneville power association and and uh the idaho um the the idaho uh, indigenous bands down there and um yeah so so they've done tons of work tons of conservation work just before this i just i just quickly skimmed a paper that was uh published in this year um a summary paper uh looking at the uh the impacts of um hydroelectric on the kootenai uh burbot population and they know that they're imperiled but still don't know exactly why know the dams have had an effect uh know the dams have had effect particularly on the uh on on populations that spawn in the main stem of the river um, likely due to things like uh, the temperature changes in the river during times when the eggs would be incubating but they don't really know there's been tons of work and tons of effort by uh, Idaho and the BC government to um, um, stock um, uh, burbot through the system and, and, and rehabilitate burbot in, in, in that system. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so that, that has been, uh, so as far as the conservation status throughout the rest of Canada, um, I think they're, they're, they're secure. Uh, they're, they're quite abundant where they, uh, where they occur. I think that uh, with warming climates, a lot of fish, uh, particularly cold water fish, have a tough time. Um, burbot, um, they uh, spend a lot of time in deep cold water. So they've got a sort of a cold water refugia in, in places where they're living that are, are shallower and you know have a shallower maximum depth they might have uh, more trouble adapting there but from a spawning standpoint they've um, done something different than than a lot of other fish where they've they've taken the stability of midwinter and and use that to their advantage for spawning so underneath the ice no matter where you are it's pretty much going to be between you know around four degrees Celsius on the bottom. So, you know, they've got their window. They, they've, they, they've, they've got their, their optimal um, egg incubation temperatures where, where the, I guess the challenge comes is if, if weather gets unusually warm and temperatures getting usually warm. The ice comes off early, and then algal blooms are early, and then the uh, the zooplankton, the feed on the algae, on the the phytoplankton emerge earlier than the uh, larval burbot hatch. You could have a mismatch in uh, in 
uh, you know, their food source of, uh, of, you know, I mean, that goes with any fish, you know, they, with changes in temperature, you could have, uh, oh God, I hope whatever she's shredding isn't important, but anyway, um, the, uh, uh, they could have, you could have mismatches in, uh, in, you know, the, the food, um, the that is needed upon, upon emergence for the larva. But for, but for, for the most part, in terms of, in terms of spawning and, uh, in terms of the stability for incubation, I mean, they've got it kind of nailed down and, and midwinter, they've got quite a buffer around them on, on, uh, on either side too, pretty much wherever they are at North, you know, in, in Canada and in, in, they live in the Northern hemisphere. So those lakes in the winter are going to be cool. Yeah, no, definitely. So let's, let's bring the vocalization piece back into this now and, and the acoustic work you were telling us about at the beginning. So, so, um, tell us the role of their vocalizations. I explained that a, a little bit and what do they use it for? Is it related to, to mating, calling females? And then the acoustic part, like is it, like stuff like the airplanes and, uh, the industrial activities, does that, is that a vulnerability? So I'm, I'm thinking yeah. whales here, right? Like the whole thing mm-hmm. with the noise in the yeah. ocean is disrupting the orcas and their ability to communicate and hunt and they're for not sure. getting the nutrition. Is that, is that a vulnerability for, for the burbot like, and the role of vocalizations? Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll just talk about the, uh, the, the sound, um, the noise part first and, and the vulnerability part. It's, um, this is funny because last night we were doing a whole thing on scientists have got a different model for the way the T-Rex sounds. Like it's not that, you know, all the, <laughs> so, so, um, so that's what I'm visualizing here for this, this big toothy fish with the big fin and stuff on it. It's got some sort of Lord of the Rings type. No, it's got a really super super well i I sent did you guys hear the the yeah that i sent you yeah it was like a clicking sound almost yeah yeah but just to just go back to the noise part about the anthropogenic noise like the man-made noise and one of the things that you were talking about with with orcas is is essentially um marine traffic or you know seismic surveys or whatever masking their ability to communicate so it's so noisy that they can't hear each other yep and, and they right, need to know. be able to communicate that to hunt fish yeah. and stuff yeah okay yeah so um so did a little bit with uh with my my uh, phd research worked with a guy from university of windsor to assess the hearing potential of burbot and to see how well they they heard it was all tied back to their vocalizations like you know is this a vestigial thing that they just you know is this a vestigial organ that they had that was from their marine ancestry that they're not using and you know like can they even hear sounds that 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 say a cod would make like is it within would a would a typical sound made by a swim bladder i'm kind of mixing uh these topics up now um kind of going into the other but you know typical sound made by swim bladder would that be within the hearing range of a fish of of a burbot right it's kind of like like a dog whistle for us just blow it all you want we can't hear it doesn't bother us so a lot of um a lot of the anthropogenic noises are outside of the hearing range 
of a lot of fish, you know, and, and what it is, um, what some of the impacts are, aren't so much masking. Um, it's, there's some that the, the concussive force of some types of noise, like for instance, pile driving, it has the same uh, sharp attenuation of, um, of pressure as like an explosive charge does. So they could physically damage fish, but that's not the case for ice road traffic or all this kind of stuff. Um, a lot of those noises are outside the hearing range. They're too high frequency. And the ones that aren't, they're kind of transient, you know, a truck will go by. It's not like they're persistent noises all the time that are going to be, that are going to be preventing uh, these fish from hearing. And some of the fish that people are worried about, like whitefish and things like that, they can't hear very well at all. So, so what we uh, came up with well, was that it wasn't as much of an issue. These, these winter sounds, you know, you got to be cognizant of them. And if there's different types of equipment used or whatever, like pay attention to that, but it's not likely going to have, harmful effects on a population you know it might even if it disturbs a fish for a little for a short time it could move away or 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 something like that the the sounds are localized and they're largely transient you know they're right here and then they'll move away or they'll happen for only a short duration you know um so so yeah so in other words when you're when you're sitting in an ice fishing tent with your buddy and he tells you to shut up Cause you're scaring the fish. He's just telling you to shut up. You're not actually scaring the fish. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> that's right. well, they could, that's they could hear it range. Yeah. Well, they, but they could feel the vibrations. Right. But that's a different, mm-hmm. that's a different sensory organ. So, um, so they'll still, they can still scram, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you probably just want your buddy to shut up. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so that, so up here with the types of um the types of um noise that are man-made noise that are that are created unlikely to have effects on the on the fish population that we're we're experiencing and 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 it was it was so we looked at different you know in, in doing different projects doing different severity of sound like done a little bit of stuff with explosives and with seismic um air guns and and things like that i mean you've got to have fish close up to this to these things for uh, for there to be a, a physical impact um behavioral um you know you could have a startle response but once say a seismic vessel goes past the fish tend to go back to doing what they're doing before so yeah, it, it the noise effects aren't the same as something like a cetacean or 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 a, or a tooth whale like an orca or something like that where you know they're very sensitive and it's within their hearing frequency because they're communicating at a super high pitch, you know. Yeah. So um, and as you guys know, sound travels super far and super far in the winter too under ice. So. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah, especially those cracks and stuff. I've known. You know, you've been out there a few times, and you can hear it coming from like two miles down the lake. You can hear, yeah, hear it, or so, those, or those sounds were at nighttime when it's like really, really cold, where it sounds like you've got like a big blue whale 
you know, go, going underneath underneath your yeah. feet, underneath the ice. There's all these weird sounds. So yeah, and that's, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty eerie. <laughs> we, um, one uh, spinoff thing of uh, of this um, uh, calling um, experiment that I did to see if Burbit called, uh, which I'll get to, uh, of course, but uh, was tracked um, the sounds because w- w- what I was focused on was do Burbit call period you know do they call and add this elaborate experiment and it was like i had one shot to pull it off and it didn't work it'd be an epic failure total embarrassment you know and everything else but it worked so that was great uh but i had (laughs) we had uh, about two and a half months of continual acoustic data um on Yellowknife Bay and Great Slave Lake, which was close to an ice road and had a bunch of anthropogenic noises happening around it, like, because it's near a city. So airplanes flying over, helicopters, snowmobiles, you know, people walking, people driving trucks and and all the rest. So what uh, we found was that there's a a curiosity to um, the the sounds that were generated under ice, uh, a lot of the, the the ice cracks would happen at sun up and sun sundown when the ice temperature changed and the and the ice flexed, and then there was the um, you know the commuting traffic basically when people were moving around you'd hear that, but when Burbit were calling it was the loudest sounds recorded during the period that sounds were recorded of any kind of sounds. Like it was the dominant noise. So it was pretty cool. Holy. Yeah. That, that is, <laughs> I never would have guessed that. I would have thought it would have yeah. been like this subtle little thing and you had to be a burbot in order to <laughs> like to, to pick I it mean, up. I will like the caveat to that is that I had put a bunch of burbot in this big pen. So they were, so they were together, whereas they do um, uh, congregate together to to make uh, to to spawn. Um, but uh, you know, you'd have to be super lucky to have your acoustic device right on top of a bunch of calling burbots. So I hedge my bets, and you know, well, there's other reasons for it too. But I had a, a huge net. Um, that I uh, placed underneath the ice. So it was a 10 meter by 10 meter by 10 meter net. So, you know, it was at a million liters of uh, net that I put Burbit into um, pre-spawn. So it's collecting Burbit uh, starting in when I, you know, anticipated before their spawn. And then I would take, sacrifice some, check out their gonadal development and see when, when they were, uh, when they were spawning. And then I would, I would, as I was collecting them, put some into this pen through the ice. And then we recorded the sound through the, uh, through what we thought the spawning period was. And we, and we, we, we were right. Like we, we, uh, we had it started in January, early January. And the, the spawning in that population was about the first three weeks of February. So, so we were able to, uh, to really hone in onto their, their vocalizations. So, and, um, yeah, so to get into their vocalizations, what they uh, what they sounded like, and they they've got a really wide vocal range. So I I um, worked with some people that that you know studied um, you know from that's one guy from from Scotland, and his his field of research is 
cod calling behavior and calls and acoustic ecology. So this is kind of what he does. So, and, and he was saying that, that it's, that they had like a wider acoustic range, a wider vocal repertoire than, than any other cod he's seen. So it's pretty neat. So they made a lot, they made a lot of different sounds and, and some of it to me was reminiscent of a rough grouse beating, you know, drumming. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like like that. And then it kind of, it almost blurs into a single sound, but it's, it's not more like a motorcycle revving or something like that. But I, I you know, sent you a couple of clips and, and some of them, I mean, they just went crazy. <laughs> and from what, um, from what's been shown with Haddock, in aquarium so they could where they could see these because i didn't i wasn't able to see these things this is just sound files so what are they doing down there who knows <laughs> but this is what they sounded like while they were down there um and it was correlated with spawning time and everything so you know it's logical to to make those those uh those links um <clears throat> and also a closely related species haddock and and atlantic cod they've watched them do this in aquariums they watched them call and they watched the behaviors and when they made that really rapid like when it goes it's when they're highly excited when they're agitated like when another fish comes by and they're and they're getting excited by it or what have you um so it's likely a way of um signaling reproductive readiness so kind of like how, like say, sharp-tailed grouse have a lecking area, you know, and they'll, they'll lek to, to bring other um, grouse around. <clears throat> but uh, beyond that, don't really know. Um, they live for the most part in a really dark, cold, austere environment where they really can't see anything. So it makes sense that they would have some other form of cue you know to signal each other because they're not like i said before they're not brightly colored or anything else i think they're really neat how they're colored but they're very camouflaged you know um so uh so uh, uh acoustic cues made sense as well and it turns out they they did that and then so i worked with a guy who um who's uh, uh, from uh, from university in the US, I think he's with University of Hawaii now. But anyway, he worked in, uh, in uh, Moya Lake, which is uh, the lake that they use in BC for you guys familiar with that lake? Yep. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, fish there. Yeah, so it's a super cool lake, because you can actually see what's going on. Like you could see the bourbon through the ice, you know. So I worked on a, on a paper with him where he did a similar type of thing but he didn't pen them at the, just the, the free swimming burbot. And what he found was even when they, they located spawning balls, the burbot were silent. So there were some, there was calls leading up to that, but then when they actually were engaged in spawning, they were quiet. So that led us to believe that the, 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 one that you know we now found another population where 
vocalizations occurred. So you can't say, oh, it's just a weird thing that Burbage and Great Slave Lake do and nowhere else. <clears throat> you know, as different of a system as Great Slave Lake as possible as more lake, right? So uh, so small, clear, little lake um, with like ice that you could see through and and everything instead of uh, instead of a meter and a half of it. Um, and uh, and yeah, so they were vocalizing as well. But during the actual act of, of mating, when they like got into their crazy uh, orgy balls, there was no vocalization. So that was that was telling. So it seems that the the vocalizations are likely a way to signal reproductive readiness and to collect fish in into you know a central spawning area from afar in the dark, you know. Uh, where they don't have means to communicate or see otherwise, you know, whereas um, river spawning fish or whatever they'll con they'll have cues to um, to um, enter a particular spawning stream or whatever when uh, when the ice starts going out, so they'll know when to when to get together. But during the middle of the winter under ice, when everything's four degrees and everything's exactly the same for months on end, how do you do that? <laughs> right. So, vocalizations is a way that you can do that that's uh wow that's i i never would have thought that a fish would would make sounds like that like it's this is this is totally totally new to me so that's that's exciting um the obvious question folks are going to be thinking here that like to fish Burbit is is that a you know something that can be exploited so when you think about hunting and you know uh we have duck calls and elk calls and moose call grunts and stuff like we hunters have learned to you know exploit those those calls what they mean the type types of year especially when they're mating related right like they're like oh okay the male the male comes wandering over looking for this cow moose or whatever and um, I think of probably any place in the world that would have figured out if that was an advantage to, to catch them, it would have been in, in the far North in the Arctic. So do you know of anything like that where sound so, is used to catch them? Yeah. <clears throat> um, so no, uh, they, they don't really, um, because they're not really feeding like they they feed all winter as you know but there's a little bit of a dip in their feeding when they're actually spawning you know they got other stuff on their mind so from an angling perspective it's not that i don't think it would be like super advantageous to to make a call to collect them because they're they're more interested in spawning but back a, a long time ago you know even hundreds of years ago in in europe they would listen to the sounds of of uh haddock calling and then they would net them up you know because then they'd be all collected in the same area so for that's in that standpoint okay. if you were wanting to net a bunch of burbot uh it would be uh, it'd be the way to go but <clears throat> but uh but shortly after um uh, spawning, then they start feeding again, eh? Because they're going to build up their reserves. Because as I said, you know, twenty percent of their body mass has has been shunted into reproduction. They've got to they've got to um, uh, start feeding again. 
and as you as you probably know as well bourbon have gigantic livers that are really fatty so that's where they store a lot of their energy so um uh yeah so they they'll want to feed feed right off the bat uh, again um after spawning to uh to bulk up yeah like in moye lake which is where we've done you know a, a little bit curtis has had some success you know with the burbot there uh, that fishery closes like must have like 15th of january or, or somewhere in there like pre pre-mating like pre pre-spawning um they just don't yeah. want they don't want people getting to those spawning beds and where they're where they're aggregating and then you know being able to target uh the fish like that so they so the seasons the season's over you know in, in it, well, yeah um and they also use uh, that lake for to collect broodstock for the the rehabilitation efforts for uh, the kootenai system so they probably want to keep it uh, um, you know, off off uh, limits to fishing during that time for that purpose also. So that, that kind of makes sense. Um, yeah, a lot of places and a lot of jurisdictions, you could still throw bourbon onto the ice, you know, and just leave them there. So, um, so it's, it's, it's not great. As you, you guys probably know that the, the meat is excellent. Um, super good, good meat, super lean meat too, because most of their, their lipids, uh, most of their fats are in the liver. Um, people eat the liver as well up, up North. It's a, it's a delicacy, um, in the Mackenzie Delta and places like that. Um, what was she taking? Uh, anyway, uh, it's very fatty and, and a long time ago, um, you could imagine that when food is scarce, I mean, if you could get super high protein, high fat food in your diet, um, then that's a good thing. So uh, they would target uh, burbot in the um, in the fall when they start ramping up uh, feeding heavily before they spawn. Okay. Huh. Yeah. So is it is it not like a really popular? game fish in the Northwest territories and was it super important to indigenous peoples like pre pre-contact? Yeah. So, so both of those things, uh, um, uh, in certain indigenous populations, especially uh, ones along the Mackenzie river, uh, they're very important, um, particularly for their livers. Um, Ice fishing, you know, people would uh, incidentally catch them. Some people target them. I, I, I mean, I've noticed that just looking at like seeing in fishing, hunting and fishing magazines, a lot more. Um, well, I've seen things about bourbon in the, in in these magazines where it, that was unheard of before, and even the the research done on bourbon has increased a lot since I've been interested in. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, so there is um. There seems to be a lot more interest and awareness and, and, uh, and, you know, that cultural shift. I mean, we eat lobsters, you know, they look like they're from outer space. I mean, a bourbon looks pretty normal compared to a lobster, you know? So it's just, it's just what we're used to and what we, um, and, um, and what we uh, get accustomed to. But, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, bourbon are really, really cool. And, and they have, uh, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot more interest lately of, uh, of people fishing for bourbon. Yeah, definitely. A lot more emphasis in, in, in hunting and fishing magazines and, and things like that. And people, 
people are getting like when people target them like right at sundown or or whatever when that you know at certain times they could just hammer these things so they're a lot of fun yeah and and i you know i think in the the sporting communities like you said they're they're a delicacy like people like the meat it's you know they liken it to the to lobster and stuff so it's like it's not it, it it's it's appeal is because it's also a good, a good tasting fish and and in some yeah. places they get they get pretty pretty darn big mm-hmm. so just just to wrap up and just kind of staying on the ice fishing thing because we are in the middle of ice fishing what is it about this whole notion so there's two aspects uh like we're relatively new in the bourbon ice fishing kind of scene so is the noise so they all talk about you know like these magazines and stuff here's talking about you see a tremendous amount of it like lots of lead like big weights and and you're you're bashing the bottom with it up and down and up and down like creating that that sound um and then there's also people that firmly believe in like the little glow sticks with the light down there so what right. is that a thing that you know of that that, that, that well, triggers bourbon or is it just kind of like well if it works it's not because there's any science yeah. behind it i don't know yeah well that's part of it too you know just confidence in the lure uh well a few things like burbot can hear because it's part of their part of their ecology you know they're they they have reproductive cues that are auditory so so having something that makes a sound would make sense because that's something that they would that they would hear they can also see well so having you know something bright and lively just like any fish like uh, attractive the other thing about bourbon and, and i mean you guys don't know this but some people um uh just downgrade them as a like a bottom feeder fish or whatever but they're a, they're an obligate pescivore so they eat only fish from the time they're about 30 centimeters long on so when they're little they hide in like streams near shore areas under rocks and they eat a lot of um, you know invertebrates and and whatever they can catch once they get big enough and they could start eating fish they're into um, the deep water and uh they're eating exclusively fish so from uh some stabilized dope analysis from for for like where they are in the trophic position of things they're actually as high as lake trout and higher than pike in terms of the food web because all they're eating is fish whereas pike you know serious predator but they eat anything like they'll eat bugs anything so their their trophic position is actually lower than burbot so burbot you want something that is going to look like a fish and make them uh, kick into that predatory instinct. Um, hmm. A lot of the burbot I've caught for research, I've used um, uh, Cisco on hooks, long lines. So, you know, bunch of, bunch of hooks on a line set on, on, on the, uh, in the, uh, on the bottom. And, um, a lot of the time I would salt them. It just made them easier to separate in the, in the winter. It, it would make a, make them easier to separate in the winter because it was always freezing cold when I was doing anything. Um, no, thanks. Um, the, uh, um, the, uh, but if the bait was there, 
for more than a day to max, they wouldn't even touch it. Like, so they're, they are only interested in fresh food and you could take a, a stomach from a trout or something like that. If it's fresh, they'll still eat it, but they won't eat anything. If it's been sitting there for a while, it's gotta be fresh. I mean, they're, they're a predator okay. and, uh, and they're, a, they're a serious, they're, they're one of the primary predators in oligotrophic lakes, you know, up there with lake trout wow. and pike. Wow. So, so super cool. and in your lakes, you know, with kokanee and, and, and other things too, bull trout. So, yeah, uh, super cool, man. This has yeah. been, this has been cool. It's learning about, about the burbot. It's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, we are recording this a little bit ahead of the ice season, but now I'm kind of getting, getting anxious to get out there. And, uh, one thing, one thing cool about the, uh, in, in, in ice, I'll just, from, from just some of the movement ecology stuff, just because it'll maybe tie into yep. fishing and kind of answer some of those questions. In the winter, they're not confined by temperature, you know, because everything's the same. So you don't have to be fishing them really deep. In fact, they'll often be a lot shallower than you think because they don't spawn in really deep water typically. They'll spawn in shallower areas. So you could fish in less than 10 meters, you know, less than 30 feet of water and even like a few meters of water. Um, up in the Mackenzie Delta, they catch them in like a meter of water. Um, and the other, and, and then in the summer, what they do, what we found that they do, which was really cool finding, I think is, uh, they do, uh, they do daily migrations. Um, so in the, in the day they'll, they'll, <clears throat> um, go into deep water to, uh, because they, they don't really like light. So they'll go into the deep water where it's cooler. They'll hang out there. They won't move a whole lot. And then when the sun, go, well, as far as it goes down up here, which isn't a real lot, but anyway, it goes lower in the, in the, in the, um, uh, you know, in the, their plane is lower and, uh, the burbot will move up into the shallows to feed a lot of activity through the night and then zip on down to the, uh, to, uh, the deeper water, uh, during the, during the day. So in the summer if you're feet if you're fishing on a shelf that you know where it's like access from deep water to um to a shallower water feeding site that transition zone is where they'll be moving um in the in the you know and when the sun starts going down and early in the morning going back down so that would be where to target them is when they're moving along like if i was setting a net that's where I would set a net too, and then intercept them moving up. Like rather than putting them in deep water where there isn't that gradient, I'd put it somewhere where there's a gradient from deep to shallow because I'll catch them moving up. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. Thanks. This was uh, definitely a passionate area for you. And and uh, hence, hence all the uh, uh, all the fish art on the walls. I know you also do a lot of work with uh, Arctic grailing and stuff, and we'd love to have you back on the show, kind of like when when people are starting to get the itch for fly fishing, because that seems to be kind of a, a batch for Arctic grailing, and and teach us about uh, about this fish that looks like it should be living in the tropics, not in Canada. So it's our territorial fish. 
Yeah, absolutely. Gorgeous, gorgeous fish. So yeah, hopefully you'll uh, join us back there to talk about Arctic grayling. Maybe, uh, yeah, for the summer, summer rolls around this coming year. So appreciate you coming on the show, Pete. Yeah. Um, no, I, thanks a lot for the invite. That was a lot of fun. So No, absolutely. Great to talk hunting and fishing with you guys. Yeah, no, that was that was fun too. And uh, just man, I like I tell you, seeing all those ptarmigan. So I, I lived in North Central British Columbia as a kid, and uh, I remember going out with my dad in the wintertime in the snowshoes and kind of some of the 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 willow meadows and stuff where the moose are, and and hunting the ptarmigan there in like February and stuff. And and I've since moved away from there. We don't really have ptarmigan here in the in the Rockies, in the South Rockies. So man, that would be a, uh, be a lot of fun. So hopefully you can get a few more of this, this winter close to home by the Definitely. sounds of it. So, yeah. Cool. Thanks Curtis. Take it away. Right on the hunter conservationist podcast is brought to you by J Martin taxidermy out of Kelowna, BC. Check them out on social J Martin taxidermy at J Martin taxidermy on Instagram. He's on Facebook, J Martin taxidermy and his website, jmartintaxidermy.com if you haven't already go check him out he's got lots of fantastic work maybe give you some ideas if you want to get something done up maybe after this we should we should push a little bit and see if see if you'll start doing some fish <laughs> not like not like the replicas like my uh when my grandfather had the taxidermy shop he had a gentleman that worked for him by the name of steve davis and he did skin mounts of fish which is pretty rare most guys will just do the replicas. The lost, skin mount, I think, is a, a a lost art. So, Jesse, if you're listening, you should start thinking about doing some skin mounts for fish because that's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, as always, big shout out to Jmar and Taxidermy for their continuing support of what we do here at the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Doctor Peter Cott, thank you very much, and uh, appreciate you coming on the show. This was uh, a whirlwind of information, learning about a super cool fish. It was nice to have the diversity on this show to kind of dive into something something new and, and a new part of the world. Kind of talking about the Northwest Territories was was a lot of fun as well. So uh, appreciate it. And hi there. <laughs> it's prob- probably close to bedtime. And uh, hopefully, hopefully the dog hasn't chewed up uh, something too important in the background there. So. No, she was good. She, uh, she, uh, candled him up. So thanks, buddy. Awesome. All right, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye.